On May 7, 1951, film actor Warner Baxter died at age 58. Sinful Cargo, with Conrad Nagel and Jack LaRue, was the midnight movie on Cleveland television station WEWS. Lights Out on NBC television presented The Lost Will of Dr. Rant, starring Leslie Nielsen. Follow the Sun, the real-life story of golf legend Ben Hogan, starring Glenn Ford, was playing at Cleveland's Allen Theater. The New York Yankees and St. Louis Cardinals were leading the American and National Leagues, respectively, and Carl Sandburg received the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for his book, Complete Poems. Where have you gone, Carl Sandburg? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving their stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhouse. Let's start out with some basics regarding Carl Sandburg. And as I talk about Carl Sandburg, to a certain extent, I will talk about him in the context of Norman Corwin, the subject of the first episode of Where Have You Gone? Carl Sandburg was born January 6th, 1878. So he was 32 years old when... Norman Corwin was born in 1910. Carl Sandburg died on July 22nd, 1967. At that point, he was living in Flat Rock, North Carolina, and that location is now the Carl Sandburg Home National Historic Site. He won two Pulitzer Prizes. He was the subject of The World of Carl Sandburg, a stage performance created by Norman Corwin that toured the United States in 1959 and 1960 following a tribute to Sandburg at the University of California, Los Angeles in 1958. Carl Sandburg's two-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln was published in 1926. His four-volume sequel, The War Years, won the 1940 Pulitzer Prize for History. Sandburg's Lincoln was adapted into a television miniseries by legendary producer David L. Wolper, starring Hal Holbrook. Sandberg and Marilyn Monroe became friends late in their lives. His article in September 11, 1962 issue of Look Magazine, titled Tribute to Marilyn from a Friend, features photos of Sandberg and Monroe by Len Steckler and Arnold Newman. Monroe had died on August 4, 1962. He's the subject of The Day Carl Sandberg Died a documentary looking back at the literary legend 50 years after his death, with guests speaking about Sandberg, including Norman Corwin, Studs Terkel, and Pete Seeger. When Sandberg died in 1967, Norman Corwin wrote, There are few men of whom it can properly be said they belong to the ages. Most belong to their own crowded hour and are forgotten in the next. And the ages could not care less. But Carl is one of the fixed immortals and has as much chance of being forgotten as Lincoln. The sad fact is that Carl Sandburg is too much forgotten. A key concept of the day Carl Sandburg died coming out 50 years after his death, 
was that, indeed, Carl Sandburg had been too much forgotten. Well, he's not forgotten here, and now you've got a little bit of a sense, probably not sense enough, of why Carl Sandburg deserves to be remembered. I will fill in some of the gaps when Where Have You Gone returns. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the episode. Let's go back to October 28, 2016. The third game of the World Series was about to begin the first World Series game at Chicago's historic Wrigley Field since 1945. That game and the entire series between the Chicago Cubs and the Cleveland Indians has been preserved for history on a DVD set licensed for distribution by Major League Baseball Properties, Inc. to Shout Factory, LLC. The first image of the October 28, 2016 broadcast is of the talented writer and broadcaster Tom Verducci. His first words are, The past is a bucket of ashes. Those are the words of Chicago's favorite poet, Carl Sandburg. And that's not the first time Tom Verducci referenced Carl Sandburg. I've mentioned the 2012 American Masters profile, The Day Carl Sandburg Died, by Paul Bonesteel. There are the Carl Sandburg State Historic Site in Illinois, birthplace and burial site, and the Carl Sandburg Home in North Carolina. And there's the Carl Sandburg Literary Award, honoring an author whose significant body of work has enhanced the public's awareness of the written word. Winners have included Judy Bloom, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Alice Walker, Scott Turow, Eric Larson, Stephen Sondheim, Larry McMurtry, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Michael Lewis, Robert Cairo, Kurt Vonnegut, and many others dating back to 2000. These things and more make up the world of Carl Sandburg in the 21st century. Back in the 20th century, Norman Corwin created the world of Carl Sandburg. The genesis of the show began in 1958 and 1959 when Corwin produced a tribute to Sandburg at Royce Hall on the campus of the University of California at Los Angeles. The specific date was November 23, 1958. Readings of Sandberg's works were performed by, in alphabetical order, Jim Backus, Vanessa Brown, Raymond Burr, Francis X. Bushman, Jeff Chandler, Hans Conried, Paul Douglas, Glenn Ford, Colleen Gray, Juan Hernandez, Jeff Hunter, Martha Heyer, Burt Lancaster, Jack Lemon, Lisa Liu, Margot, Patty McCormick, Hugh O'Brien, Anthony Quinn, Eva Marie Saint, Frank Silvera, and Jan Sterling. How's that for a lineup? The extravaganza at UCLA led Corwin to write a two-act, three-person stage presentation. Film legend Betty Davis signed on as the lead with her husband, Gary Merrill. 
Musician Clark Allen filled out the cast. The original tour of the show lasted 21 weeks, traveling the roads of America across the country from Maine to California from October 1959 to April 1960. The show went on to a brief run on Broadway from September 8 to October 14, 1960. Unfortunately, by then, Davis and Merrill had divorced. Leif Erikson replaced Merrill in the Broadway production. A book version of The World of Carl Sandburg was published by Harcourt, Brace, and World in 1961. It includes an introduction, the script, and notes on direction and the UCLA tribute. In 1966, National Educational Television presented a version of Corwin's The World of Carl Sandburg, featuring the distinguished actors Fritz Weaver and Uta Hagen. Thanks to the Phoenix Learning Group, we can still view that production today. At the company's website, the program is described as follows. A black woman contemplates her life. A father talks to his son. And a married couple grow to hate each other. Uta Hagen and Fritz Weaver bring Sandberg's world to life in this film about one of the world's giants of literature and poetry. The film is based on Norman Corwin's stage presentation, produced by Nathan Kroll. Carl Sandberg is indeed not forgotten in the 21st century. And after a short break, I'll speak to Paul Bonesteel about his film, The Day Carl Sandburg Died, which has done a great job of keeping Sandburg's legend alive in the 21st century. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. As Where Have You Gone? Carl Sandburg continues, I'm joined by Paul Bonesteel, owner of Bonesteel Films and producer, director, writer, and editor of The Day Carl Sandburg Died. Before making The Day Carl Sandburg Died, what did you know about Carl Sandburg? Well, a fair bit, and that's part of my backstory, I guess, on on Sandburg and what makes um, maybe my kind of passion or or, uh, approach... um, uh, a little different than just a filmmaker who is looking for a subject. Uh, I grew up in Flat Rock, North Carolina, you know, and so uh, when we moved to town uh, in the mid-70s, the, the Park Service had just recently taken over uh, the home, Connemara, as, uh, as a Park Service entity. And my mom, who's a real go-getter, started volunteering out there. And I'm a 10-year-old kid tagging along and we're wandering through the house that had, you know, in the last five years had, had kind of set uh, dormant for a while while the park service kind of figured things out and, and all that. And so there were, but there were goats to take care of and there were kittens all over the place. And uh, so for a few years, you know, we had a garden out there and it was sort of like our, uh, just a little dream, uh, scape as a kid, because, you know, I just dropped into this, uh, pre-Civil War home farm with animals to play with and, and, uh, kind of hippie park service people teaching us about poetry. And, um, you know, uh, I learned then that, that Carl Sandburg was this really dynamic person, this grandfatherly kind of figure who had been elevated to a, a place worthy of a national park site. So I, I came at it um, 
uh, I wasn't honestly that obsessed or interested in who he was at that moment. I just knew he was a, a prominent American writer. And, and I did, I was attracted to, of course, the Rutabaga stories and, and the, the poems that, that we shared. And they, they taught us how to uh, encouraged us to write poems like Sandberg and stuff like that. But, um, you know, and then in the mid 80s in college, uh, an American lit class uh, going through the, the, the big Bible of, of American literature, uh, I'm looking through it and there's no Sandberg. And I'm like, wait a minute, something doesn't jive here. You know, um, why is there Bob Dylan? Why is there Robert Frost? Why is there Joni Mitchell even? Why is there, you know, uh, of course, all the, you know, the the usual Ezra Pounds and the William Carlos Williams and, the, you know, the, and where's Sandberg? Um, and so that kind of started me thinking that something wasn't quite right, you know, um, flash forward into the early 90s and, you know, Penelope Niven uh, did an amazing biography of Sandberg. Um, and I, uh, I scooped it up and was very interested in making a film in the early 90s, but I was just early in my, my filmmaking and, and the subject and the kind of idea I had was just too big for me to get my head around. Um, uh, but what I did at that time was I began to understand wh why from reading her uh, biography and other uh, contemporary sort of reviews uh, understand how Sandberg had been kind of minimized and, and, and downplayed um, for a period of time. And so that, that hung with me. Um, and then in, in, in the early 2000s um, or mid, like around 2005 is when I, I, I realized that if I wanted to make this film, it, it had to be made now while important people who knew Sandberg were still alive. So that's, that's, that's the backstory. Yes. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that because you interviewed Norman Corwin. Uh, you interviewed uh, Helga Sandberg Kreil, Pete Seeger, uh, Penelope Niven, who you mentioned, uh, Studs Terkel. And, and sad to say, I, I believe they're all gone now. Um, you mentioned uh, Penelope Niven in particular. How important was she to the telling of the story? Well, you know, for those who've seen the film, if you haven't, um, it's available. Uh, it was on American Masters and, and it's available uh, online to stream now. Um, she's a key storyteller in, in the film because she had done... You know what's interesting? She was she was also at the uh, Connemara in the early years of trying to sort sort through the archive that was there. A big archive was still up at University of Illinois of Sandberg's work and papers, but a lot was was in at Connemara, and so she was involved in that too, and was inspired to um, to begin the biography then. That of course took her a dozen or more years to, to finish. It was, um, you know, a huge work. She was a key uh, storyteller um, and advocate for me um, because she, uh, she contextualized Sandberg in a way that he needed to, to be, uh, uh, to, to be contextualized at that period. You know, she was very aware and she addresses it, you know, in her work and in the film um, about the criticism that that had followed Sandberg uh, after his death, and um, uh, and you know, and she was, but she was an uh, unapologetic uh, fan as well. You can't dedicate that much of your life and your intellect without being a, uh, uh, committed to some of the ideas or many of the ideas that Sandberg was committed to, um, and all those people you mentioned were were uh were equally enthusiastic and um you know I, I i've said this before but uh, um all the people from from pete seeger uh to to studs uh to norman you know when i called and or made contact and said i'm doing a film about carl sandberg you know there was an immediate yes they they 
there wasn't a, well, who are you and what, what are you going to do it for? It was like, you know, they were committed to telling the story of Sandberg. Um, and that, that was empowering, um, you know, to have those, those caliber people. Um, it just, it reassured me that, that, that the story I wanted to tell was real, that Sandberg meant something to the 20th century. Um, because, you know, you can read things, uh, that, that will tell you the opposite. Um, mm -hmm. and so it became a, a, a quest, a challenge, uh, a passion for me to figure out an equation that would, um, celebrate Sandberg, uh, to a new audience who probably never heard of him or only had a, a fleeting kind of thought that, Oh yeah, I've heard a little of Chicago or I, I know he wrote that poem about fog or I've seen that face, you know, that face is familiar from the, you know, the 1960s sitting with Marilyn Monroe on a sofa, you know, what is that all about? Like the, the people had a, a curiosity, but they really didn't know. And nor did I the full scope of his, his life until I, I, I delved in uh, both the Penelope's book and you know, other research. You, you mentioned Marilyn Monroe and you, you used the word grandfatherly. And that is the image that first comes to my mind thinking about Sandberg, but there's the earlier, uh, the, the anarchist, uh, one of the first comments in the film is from, uh, Helga, uh, Sandberg Kreil. She says he was a socialist, uh, a true socialist, she says. Yes. Yeah. And and so tell me about putting those two, uh, you know, different parts of Sandberg together. What was interesting was um, he had become, uh, in the 50s, this grandfatherly and um, sort of perceived conservative uh, voice, uh, and I don't mean that necessarily politically, but but uh, old school. And um, uh, and what I found was that uh, in the, a couple of these moments are in the film. Um, even you know when he's interviewed on Meet the Press, someone challenges him about his early days, and 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 uh, and he does not deny it. In fact, he still takes. Uh, the moniker uh, of a radical, even, you know, at, at age, uh, I guess he was probably 75 or so about that time. So while his public image kind of softened, I think, um, and there's a lot to that story, uh, his own softening of it, I guess, or just the evolution of, a, of an artist and a, and a kind of a, uh, with political leanings, um, he was rooted in uh in a fairly, fairly radical left thinking, at least how we perceive it now, you know, that was a very big lesson for me to learn was that, that, uh, in the 19 teens, um, you know, leading up to obviously the, the, you know, the, the, the Soviet, uh, the, the Russian revolution, you know, the idea of socialism and I mean, and obviously communism, uh, those were very vibrant ideas in that in that generation in, the, in that period, and um, and and for good reason. The Industrial Revolution had had just dehumanized a lot of um, uh, a lot of the the American ideals, and Sandberg was responding to that, and other people were too, uh, with his organizing and such. Um, so I was surprised at what we learned about the level of, of, uh, of left, you know, left Sandberg in the early years. But it was fascinating to see how that uh, got converted and um, uh, adapted into other forms of work through, through his life. Um, and, and, you know, the diversity of his work is just phenomenal. And, and I could go on about that for, for quite some time. And, and I tried to, in the film, to highlight that he wasn't just a poet. You know, he was a serious journalist. He was a serious biographer, yet also wrote some of the most brilliant, nonsensical kids, you know, uh, stories as, uh, simultaneous to writing 
uh, about the American song bag and about folk songs and about, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the people, yes, which is like the, you know, an amazing work. So, and, and we haven't even really gotten to Lincoln, you know, so. Well, yes. And, and, you know, it's interesting because you, you mentioned poet and there's a lot about the, the, the poetry in the film and yet, and you mentioned how diverse he, his work was. And when I think of Sandberg, I think of poetry down the list. I think of him more as a historical figure. I, I think of him in terms of, of Lincoln, uh, a project like the Family of Man, for instance. You, it, it's, it seems like you came at it more from Sandberg as poet. Is that so? Uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the film. I, I, um, I wanted to, uh, express the, 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 you know, there's a great Steichen photograph of the, all these faces of Sandberg. Mm -hmm. And that's all, that's often been referred to by, by, by Penelope and other people as a, as a great photograph because it, it exhibits, you know, uh, uh, like five or six different sort of faces of Sandberg uh, from the same like uh, photo uh, photography session. Uh, and that's kind of who he was, was, was so dynamic. Um, the, the poetry is the most criticized. Um, it was also, you know, the, the most um, uh, in a sense radical and, and, um, for the for the period where where he um, broke in, he was able to make uh, a huge impact with Chicago poems and and the the, the books of poetry that followed. Um, but the critics, you know, are are um, were really confused, and they and they still are, and that that's part of why he's been forgotten, in a sense, is that um, his style of poetry. I guess what he evolved into with the people, yes, and some of his other poems, um, was was very unlike uh, not just the traditions uh, prior, um, but what came after him, you know. And so uh, there's a there is an emphasis in the film about about the poetry for sure, and it, and uh, uh, but I I tried to represent all the other facets. Um, it, it, I could have, you know. Uh, oh, you know, I could have done a Ken Burns, uh, mm -hmm. Sam, Sandberg. You know, I wish I, I wish I would have had the the money and the, and honestly, the you know the 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 the, the wavelength, the broadcast kind of wavelength to 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 have five or six episodes on Sandberg because the the content's there now, you know. Um, uh, the content is there, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, let me ask you to, to, to kind of get into that a little bit, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Norman Corwin and his career. Uh, much of his work is intertwined with Sandberg's work. And in the film, uh, you have maybe three, four, uh, plus or minus little uh, bits of interviews with Norman Corwin how did you, uh, you know, what do you remember of, of contacting Norman and how much uh, interviewing did you do to get those small pieces that actually show up in the film? Yeah, um, he, uh, as I mentioned, um, was one of the people I reached out to because I knew he was, uh, you know, still alive. And and I'd, I, I can't remember exactly how I contacted him, but he... Um, responded enthusiastically. Um, we put together a trip out to, to LA and um, uh, he welcomed us in. Um, and we, we spent a couple hours together um, uh, and, and, and conducted the interview there in his, his apartment. And, um, uh, you know, he, he, um, he, he had such a, a, a respect for Sandberg and Sandberg came along at a point in his career where um, he needed that kind of uh, mentor in a way um, to, to encourage him to continue kind of fighting the fight. You know, Sandberg uh, was, was clear from the beginning um, that he had an, a, an agenda to his work, you know, and, and Norman Corwin, 
also had an agenda to his work. And a lot of the writers and the people who, who I interviewed um, were committed to, to, you know, more than just making a buck with their, their art. I mean, Sandberg made plenty of money uh, in his time, especially with the Lincoln work and his Hollywood kind of uh, flirtations later in his life. But for a good half of his life, he was scraping by, you know, book to book and, and newspaper article to, to, you know, he was, um, so he was committed and, and Norman, um, uh, conveyed all that to me. And, and, you know, most importantly, my personal experience with, with, uh, with Mr. Corwin was just make this film, Paul, finish this film, you know, and, and that, that meant a lot. Um, cause the whole time we, we were not funded, uh, appropriately. We, we didn't have a magic kind of a ticket from American masters to, to make this film. We were working on that the whole time from grant requests to relationship building to foundation requests, you know, all the stuff filmmakers do, but it was a lot of out of pocket stuff. So it took that kind of hand on the shoulder, Paul, you know, this film is bigger than you make it. Uh, from people like Norman Corwin and Pete Seeger and Stud Sturkle. And, you know, those, those, those meant a lot. And um, so I, I thank him for that. And, uh, uh, and he was great following up too in the years after, you know, before he, he passed. Um, he was a big supporter uh, of, the, of the film. Tell me about working uh, Galesburg, Illinois into the story. Yeah, you know, Always a Young Stranger was his autobiography, and um, it's a great read, uh, which he wrote when he was, you know, 75, 80 years old, which is shocking that he was able to kind of come up with a, a book like that then with such detail. Um, the, what I found in Galesburg was an interesting kind of microcosm uh, of the rest of the world, if you will, about... Um, about their perception of Sandberg. Uh, his birthplace is a, is a state historical site uh, maintained by some really committed, you know, people. And, um, and there's a, a Knox College there, some, some um, wonderful uh, professors and, 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 and historians there who, who were involved in the film. Uh, and there's also a bit of an eye roll from some of the community uh, who were, you know, that, that who didn't, who just didn't have the same appreciation for Sandberg. He just, you know, there's a Sandberg mall and there's a Sandberg street and there's a, uh, I mean, I'm not saying they didn't appreciate some, some people just, you know, just didn't really uh, uh, have the same level of appreciation. Um, there's now a statue there in the town square. Um, but being in, in Galesburg was important. I think I was there three times um, for one research trip and then two, two different shoots um, and the people were amazing. Um, and it's, and it's, it's such a, a quintessential kind of Midwestern, um, small town that had seen, you know, bigger, better days. Um, and when Sandberg was there, uh, it was a, a, a huge, um, well, I mean, physically not, not bigger, but it, but it was, a uh, uh, an intersection point for a lot of trains and a lot of people going west and, and coming east, and and so Sandberg, you know, had that uh, that that very um, uh, kind of um, metropolitan experience in a tiny town because because the the uh, the Chautauqua or the orators would come through and the circus would come through and the musicians and all kinds of people would come through Galesburg and, and he, uh, he soaked all that up. Um, but it was obviously a, a railroad town and his father, you know, pounded metal in the shop there for, for his whole life. Um, and, and they, they lived in a very, uh, you know, a, a very, uh, sort of, uh, a poor, you know, poor childhood. So, compared that to Connemara and yeah, um, dramatically different. Um, uh, there's always, there's a bit of, um, kind of humor or irony, I guess, in, in Sandberg living in a home that was, uh, you know, owned by, uh, uh by a, a Confederate family, if you will, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, that, um, 
there's a there's a lot of the South in in Flat Rock, North Carolina. There are homes built by people from Charleston and uh, beautiful homes, in, uh, including you know Connemara. And um, uh, so yeah, I mean the 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 uh, the, the, the change, um, I mean, there, are, you know, that, that story, um, he, he wasn't necessarily looking for a huge house to, to move into, but he did his, his family and his wife, um, were crazy about goats. And, and, uh, as it said in the film, um, they were tired of, of their house, you know, almost getting blown down on the shores of Lake Michigan, uh, and wanted to move move south, move somewhere warmer, and and had have a pasture and like, uh, so uh, she found the house and and he bought it and in 1945, right after the war, they moved down and, you know, and that that um, that was a big change from from being the Midwesterner that uh, that that he was. You you mentioned in the in the film, which has now come out about uh, ten years ago, uh, a Sandberg Renaissance. Do you see that as something that's continued over the past 10 years? Well, Morris, I wish I could say yes. Um, I, uh, I did have hopes that putting Sandberg on a national platform of American Masters, when, when I got the, the green light that it was going to be on the air on, on national PBS, I was thrilled, you know, and I, I, I fantasized about the week after of, of of you know the, the the huge you know effect that uh presidents were going to remark about sandberg again and and um you know books would fly off the shelf and um uh it hasn't quite been like that and i'm not um you know is what 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 is interesting and is captured in the film is i was able to tap into uh during the you know from the early 2000s through the making of the film in, in 12. And I, and it has continued to some extent, but there was uh, an active reconsideration and a celebration of Sandberg in a lot of different ways. And I tried to express that in the film with the musicians from Dan Zane's looking at the American song bag to uh, slam poets, you know, who were doing Sandberg poems and, uh, you know, there are, there are school, uh, there are competitions that are, that where people will, um, will perform, uh, you know, Chicago and you you get graded and rated on it. And, um, and there have been some academic works, you know, through the years where people have, uh, and, and one of the facets of the film was we actually had an, uh, a seminar here in Flat Rock where we invited uh, a, a bunch of these academics in to, to discuss uh, the Sandberg legacy. Um, so it has happened. Um, I feel very similar to how I felt throughout most of the film, making of the film, and, and which is I think America needs to read some Sandberg. Um, and, and I say that because America is searching for its soul right now. And America has always searched for its soul. Sandberg knew that then. Post-Civil War, we were searching for our soul. You know, um, the 1920s and the 30s and the Great Depression, the war years, the 1950s and communism, like throughout the 20th century, Sandberg was trying to contextualize the, uh, the experience um, of the American, the American experience. And, you know, I think the best illustration I can say about that right now is, you know, the, the, the 2020 experience we've lived through and our perception of race uh, and, um, and the disservice uh, that, that kind of white America has lived with, uh, placed on, 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 on people of color Sandberg um, was so uh, attuned to that. Um, the, 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 the Lincoln biography is, is, can be narrowed down to almost a very small uh, statement that Sean Wilentz makes in the film about Sandberg wanting to clarify the, the real roots of the Civil War. And why that's interesting to me right now, which of course was slavery, but at the time that Sandberg wrote that, um, the, the 1920s had seen this resurgence of, um, of discrediting um, 
the, the Civil War as not being about slavery. And, and that sentiment um, has polluted the 20th century, you know, and Sandberg was trying to debunk that um, through his telling of Lincoln, uh, through lots of other work. Um, but that's the kind of rethinking that can happen when you read a writer who, you know, a hundred years ago was writing, uh, about the very same thing we're dealing with today, you know, which is kind of white perception of, of black America. And, um, we haven't fixed that, you know, we just haven't. And, um, and if you don't read it from the past, if you don't tap into the thinkers who have been putting effort into this through the years, you know, and there's a lot of people you can read, contemporary and historical, we just need that. America needs, needs to spend that time. And Sandberg's one of those voices that I think needs to be read. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I, I think that's a, a good place to end. And for people that have not seen the day Carl Sandburg died, I think it works as now as well now as when it first came out. It's important for for people. It's it's a story that I think will resonate with people here as as we move out of 2020 and into 2021. And I uh, thank you for for doing it. Well, I, I've watched it recently, and uh, and I, I was reassured that it, it does still have resonance, and I appreciate you saying that. Um, I'm going to plug it. You know, the day Carl Sandburg died dot com is where you can uh, stream it. Um, I mean, you can stream it for for 99 cents, so that's not much of an investment um, for such a uh, what you know a long work in progress, and 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 hopefully a, a, a film that you can enjoy, and you can download it for a bit more. But um, uh, you know, Morris, I appreciate you looking back at Sandberg. He he is a forgotten character uh, for many people, or just an unknown character of of the 20th century. But I think. Um, you know, if people watch a film or pick up a, a book or even just do some Googling about Sandberg, you can you can dive in and where you swim is up to you. You know, you can go to a lot of different you know, uh, facets of, of Carl Sandberg because um, there are a lot. But um, uh, yeah, thank you for having me. After a short break, I'll look further at the influence of Penelope Niven and Norman Corwin on the telling of the Carl Sandburg story. Where Have You Gone is about the written word and the spoken word. It's about a journey that is sometimes as far as across the country and sometimes as close as pulling a book off the shelf. It's about the mid-20th century as a tipping point when radio, television, movies, travel, journalism, literature, and baseball were much different but not completely different than they are today. It seems like some of the best of those things have been lost. Sometimes what has been lost can be found. Sometimes something is not lost at all, but hiding in plain sight. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Let's go to the books and see what more we can learn about Carl Sandburg. I have two books here. One is Carl Sandburg, a biography by Penelope Niven. The other is The World of Carl Sandburg, a stage presentation by Norman Corwin. This is from the dust jacket notes from Carl Sandburg, a biography. The first major biography of Carl Sandburg presents a broad, sweeping look at America's favorite poet. Penelope Niven, who was granted access to the more than 50,000 papers in the Sandburg collection at Connemara, in Flat Rock, North Carolina, and at the University of Illinois, 
has followed this son of immigrant parents from his birth in 1878 on through the early years when he struggled to find his identity into his mature years of fame. Here is a remarkable portrait of Sandberg, the young vagabond who rode the railroads, the journalist who covered the American century, the orator who sang and talked his way across the country, the biographer of Abraham Lincoln, and ultimately the gifted poet. The biography, which in total with notes and index and permissions and all that good stuff, is 843 pages, is broken up into the Prairie Years, 1869 to 1911, the Chicago Years, 1912 to 1926, the Lincoln Years, 1926 to 1945, and the Connemara Years, 1945 to 1967. There was something that particularly struck me in the preface to Niven's biography of Sandberg. If not for Norman Corwin, I probably would not be speaking about Carl Sandburg. And as I recall, it was after I met Corwin, but I don't know how much impact knowing Norman Corwin had on me making my first visit to Connemara, the homestead, now the National Historic Site, in Flat Rock, North Carolina. I've been back at least a couple times since that first visit. I was there once when the place was under renovation, and so all the books, and there were books everywhere, but for the renovation, all the books had been taken out, and all the shelves were empty. It was a little bit of a disappointment, but it was a unique experience to see the house in that state. And then uh, the next visit, the books had been put back, but for some reason or other, the attic was off limits. And the attic is a very important part of the house. So really... Each visit has been its own unique experience and has increased my interest in Carl Sandburg. And Niven begins her preface to her Sandburg biography, writing, I came to Carl Sandburg reluctantly. Further ahead, she writes that her first encounter with Sandberg came in 1976 when she explored Connemara as a tourist. She writes, I left Connemara haunted by Sandberg's presence in the house and compelled by the evidence of his work and character. Back home in Maryland in my own busy life, I could not forget Sandberg. Never mind that I had long ago dismissed him as a celebrity more than a serious figure in American letters. I was curious now about the shadow whose spirit seemed so alive in Flat Rock. I think it's also worth pointing out here, as she does a couple paragraphs further into her preface, criticism of Sandberg. She writes, Taking aim at Sandberg... Robert Frost mused that writing free verse was like playing tennis without a net. William Carlos Williams wrote a review in Poetry in 1951, so profoundly negative that it haunts Sandberg's reputation to this day. Niven was not quite 40 years old when she made that first visit to Connemara. She passed away on August 28, 2014 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Carl Sandburg, a biography, is 
kind of the whole picture, the the feast of Carl Sandburg's life and career and accomplishments. The world of Carl Sandburg is much shorter by comparison. Corwin takes us through the world of Carl Sandburg by way of his poetry and prose from his early days to his later years. He draws on 10 of Sandberg's published volumes. The book version of The World of Carl Sandberg has a unique gimmick using even and odd pages. The odd-numbered pages contain the script, along with some notes and stage directions. The even-numbered pages provide a running commentary between Corwin and Sandberg. And so it's as though you are watching the play or reading the play with Corwin and Sandberg right there with you. Let me quote from the introduction that Norman Corwin wrote for the book version of The World of Carl Sandberg from Sherman Oaks, California, May 1st, 1961. I prevailed on Sandberg to say a few things about each selection. He did, in the form of a conversation between us that was stenographically preserved, quips, asides, and all. I've spoken about two books in this segment of Where Have You Gone, Carl Sandberg, and neither one was written by Carl Sandberg. Seems that I ought to talk about at least one Sandberg book, and I've chosen the American Songbag, originally published in 1926. I'm quoting from text on the back cover of the 1990 edition of the American Songbag. Carl Sandburg was not only one of America's best-loved poets, but also a collector and performer of American folk music. In his travels over the United States, talking about poetry and reading his verse, he frequently used to close the program with a session of songs, providing commentary along the way. This long-established anthology, compiled by Sandberg and, quote, his friends from coast to coast and from the Gulf to Canada, unquote, contains singable words and music, complete harmonizations or piano accompaniments to 290 songs, ballads, and ditties that people have sung in the making of America. The material in this song bag is collected under a wide variety of subject headings, each of which is a chapter in the American experience. Among these, quote, chapters, unquote, Mexican border songs, minstrel songs, bandit biographies, tarnished love tales, pioneer memories, and darn fool ditties. There's sure to be something in the American song bag to offend everybody. The 1990 edition of the American song bag includes an introduction by Garrison Keeler. In the introduction, he writes that Sandberg wrote to Vasho Lindsay, Just now I'm trying to finish up the American song bag. When I saw the connection between Lindsay and Sandberg, I searched around a bit and came upon a May 20, 2000 article by the late Roger Ebert, titled Carl Sandburg, Film Critic. Several paragraphs down in the article, Ebert writes, It's interesting that two of the poets most associated with Illinois, Carl Sandburg and Vashel Lindsay, both devoted a great deal of their time to film criticism. I suspect there's something I can say here about six degrees of separation, and if I ever think of it, maybe I'll put it into another episode. In the meantime, Where Have You Gone, Carl Sandburg will continue after a short break.
For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm not the world's foremost authority on Carl Sandburg, but I have looked at a number of books about Sandburg, and everything I've looked at so far in book form is lacking when it comes to any discussion of Sandburg and baseball. Carl Sandburg is my subject because he was important to Norman Corwin. Sandburg was a baseball fan, just as was Norman Corwin. They had that in common, but their common interest in Abraham Lincoln was probably a more important bond. I'm about to quote from the dust jacket of the Norton Book of Sports. The Norton Book of Sports, published by Norton in 1992, bills itself as deep and elegant, powerful and enticing. George Plimpton, America's troubadour of sports and its foremost amateur participant, has compiled the best collection of sports writing ever. The collection contains numerous entries on baseball by writers including Jim Brosnan, Roger Angel, W.P. Kinsella, Ring Lardner, James Thurber, Ernest Lawrence Thayer, Lawrence Ritter, T.C. Boyle, John Updike, Red Smith, Robert Creamer, Garrison Keeler, Thomas Boswell, and Carl Sandburg. Sandburg's entry is titled Hits and Runs. It may be the shortest entry in the book. In particular, he mentions the Chillicothe players, the Rock Island players, and the umpires. Earlier, I mentioned Tom Verducci in reference to the 2016 World Series and Carl Sandburg. I did a Google search of Carl Sandburg, Tom Verducci. And the first article that comes up, it says this article appears in the November 14, 2016 issue of Sports Illustrated. And a ways down in the article talking about the Cubs' comeback in the 2016 World Series and the subsequent celebration. Verducci writes, Only a dozen years after the 1908 championship, Chicago's great poet Carl Sandburg, in an unintended nod to the local nine, wrote in Smoke and Steel, Tumble, O Cubs, Tomorrow belongs to you. Tumble they did, but who could have known that more than 25,000 tomorrows would have to pass for them to win again. Verducci also makes a reference to Sandberg in the book Inside Baseball, The Best of Tom Verducci. And at the very beginning, he writes the way I remember it. The first time I laid eyes on a major league ball player, he was larger than life, or at least bigger than a charter bus. It was 1967, a little more than a month before my seventh birthday. I have no memory that it was the summer Carl Sandburg and Edward Hopper died, that the United States bombed Hanoi, that Thurgood Marshall was named a Supreme Court Justice, and that Newark, New Jersey, only a few miles from our home in Glen Ridge, was one of the many American cities torn apart by race riots. I highly recommend The Day Carl Sandburg Died, the documentary by Paul Bonesteel, a dynamic exploration into the life and work of the iconic American. It is relatively easy to find. Not as easy to find is the DVD of The World of Carl Sandburg, 
it is available from the Phoenix Learning Group, www.phoenixlearninggroup.com. Easier to find, perhaps, is the printed copy of The World of Carl Sandburg by Norman Corwin. And if you have gotten hooked on the subject, I think you would be well served by taking a look at Penelope Niven's book, Carl Sandburg, A Biography. That will do it for this episode of Where Have You Gone? Where Have You Gone, Carl Sandburg? Thanks once again to Paul Bonesteel for joining me on this episode. I'm Morris Eckhaus, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo is by Jeff Santala. Special thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastricola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhaus. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company.